perhaps you've heard similar stories, but I did hear a story once of a, a couple that was invited to a wedding, and they had a nice gift all wrapped up, and they, they gave it to the, the newlyweds. And the newlyweds uh, eventually opened their gift, and they discovered inside of this nicely wrapped gift was a card with a congratulatory address on it from several years earlier given to the couple who gave the gift at the wedding. So they had apparently received this gift and they had re-gifted it at the wedding, but they didn't open it and rewrap it. And so they were sort of busted for um, re-gifting uh, at, at this particular wedding. Uh, probably not the greatest example of giving your best. Now, I'm not sure where you stand on re-gifting, but um, if it is something you do or have done, I would advise you at least open the gift and remove any of the contents, contents and then rewrap it. Well, the title of today's sermon is Giving God Your Best. Uh, we don't want to be guilty of fumbling through the, the storage room to try to find things that we don't really care about to give to the Lord. We don't want to give God our leftovers. Uh, we don't want to give God the, the remainder of our money, the remainder of our time. Uh, as Christians, God is, is worthy of, of our best. And this is one of the themes we'll see in 1 Kings chapter 5. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 3, if you can remember back a few weeks, uh, the Bible tells us that King Solomon had come to the throne of Israel. Still the United Kingdom of Israel, reigning over the, tw the 12 tribes, and at that particular point in time, <clears throat> there's an indication that the worship life of Israel was still in a deficient state. So if you explore that text, uh, on one hand, Solomon is sort of kind of getting it right and sort of kind of getting it wrong. So he goes to Gibeon and he worships at one of the high places. And we're told in First Chronicles that that is where the Ark of the Lord was. So in some respects, that was a, a proper, valid uh, act of worship. But on the other hand, we're told that he and the people of Israel were worshiping at numerous other high places. So high places were, could have been a rock outcrop, could have been a hilltop, uh, higher kind of places. And high places, if you read through the Old Testament, are very problematic for the prophets. The prophets often speak against worship at the high places. And the reason for that is because of their ancient association with Canaanite worship. So if you thumb back in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, God had warned the people of Israel that he didn't want them worshiping at the high places. E even if they were worshiping the true and living God there, the association with Canaanite deities was problematic. It says, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire you shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of the place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So God had principles, regulations associated with public worship. And in Solomon's day, like I said, they were kind of worshiping accurately because they would have been worshiping 
presumably the true and living God, but God was concerned about the location. Now we may not think much about location in the modern world because the church is a global phenomenon, but in the old covenant, under the old covenant, the proper place of worship was in Jerusalem. The proper place of public worship, that is, was in Jerusalem, notwithstanding the various synagogues that eventually popped up in, in the towns and regions of Israel. The problem for Solomon and his people is that they didn't have any other options. They didn't have a temple yet. The tabernacle they had, that was at Gibeon, but they did not have a proper centralized place to worship the true and living God. And so they found themselves in a a bit of a pickle. David, Solomon's predecessor, also his father, had hoped that he would be able to build a temple for the people, but God said, I'm not comfortable with that. You're a man of war. I want Solomon to do it. So now King Solomon is God's man and he is supposed to remedy the uh, problems in the worship life of the people of Israel. Now, contrary to the cheap, inexpensive, individualistic worship that characterizes so much of the modern church, the Old Testament church, if you will, the, the Old Testament covenant assembly understood that God is worthy of everything. And so they, instead of being cheap, they decided to develop some plans that were expensive and that were expansive, that would give them private opportunities for worship, but that would also give them public opportunities for worship. I actually have a slight fear in my heart and mind when I look at much of the modern church and how much of an emphasis we have on private worship and your own relationship with God and your own devotional life and your own prayer life with God. And it's almost like in our minds, because we emphasize individual salvation so much that we put that up on a pedestal and we sort of think of corporate worship or public worship as sort of a a distant second to uh, the Christian life. But I would actually argue that they're on par, that public worship and private worship are both commanded and are equally important to God. And every vibrant Christian will not only engage in private worship in the context of their home or as they're driving to work, but they will also commit themselves to public worship. The first century church did it. Christians have done this throughout uh, the, 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 the New Testament era, but I think there's been a bit of a, 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 some slippage in this regard and that you literally have people say nonsensical, sinful things like, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Like, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Of course, you don't become a Christian by necessarily showing up for public worship, but nor do you become a Christian by reading your Bible at home. You become a Christian as you're justified by the grace and mercy of God. But as we live out our Christian faith, there must be a public and a private dimension to it. And both are commanded and both are valuable. Well, here we have an extravagant example of public worship. And from this text, we learn that God is worthy of the most extravagant worship imaginable. And what we're going to read here is... uh, probably going to rattle us a little bit because the, the, the amount of time and money and energy that they put into public worship was unbelievable compared to much of what we see in the modern church, maybe all of what we see in the modern church. So let me begin by reading for you uh, the first uh, several verses of uh, 1 Kings chapter 5. 
<clears throat> now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that he had been anointed, that they had anointed him king in the place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, that word there is Yahweh, or in German, Jehovah, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. And now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. We read about that last week, the, the economic prosperity, the peace. Everyone was happy. Everyone was well-fed uh, in Israel. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut from me and my servants will join your servants and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Well, as soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David a wise son to be over his great people. It's noteworthy that even though he was not a worshiper of Yahweh, that he gives praise to Yahweh. It's a fascinating event that takes place here. And Hiram said to Solomon, sent to Solomon saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon. I shall make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So there's going to be a trade relationship between the king of Tyre and the king of Israel. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. Now, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil, Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. Listen to this. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. So that tells us that Solomon's actions are commendable to God. He wasn't acting outside of God's plan. His actions are commendable to God. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and the two of them made a treaty. So I want to, first of all, spend a bit of time unpacking the details of what we've just read. So let's make sure we understand the text. So we're told at the beginning that Solomon the new king of Israel, that his father had had a, an, an enjoyable, peaceful relationship, a positive relationship with Hiram, the king of Tyre, who, by the way, reigned from 980 to 947 BC. So this is rough, almost exactly 3,000 years ago that this, this event took place. And though Hiram was not a worshiper of Yahweh, Solomon understood there's no reason to pick a fight with him. He's, he's, he's living at peace with us. He's not trying to invade our borders. He certainly doesn't come across as a blasphemer. In fact, in a certain respect, he speaks well of the true and living God. And again, keep in mind, 
as you, as you think about this relationship between a non-believer and a believer, that God essentially puts his stamp of approval on it because we're told in the text that God is giving him wisdom. And so we should be able to conclude, it's not always evident when we're reading narratives, is this like a positive example or a negative example that we should be avoiding? I think it's accurate for us to include, uh, conclude that this is a positive example. And so one of the principles I think we could rightly extract from this text for our purposes is that a degree of co-belligerence, partnership with lost people can at times be prudent. So we, don't, we shouldn't have this mindset that we need to run and hide from all pagans and lost people and never engage in any sort of commerce or any sort of relationships with them at all. That's not true. In fact, to a large degree, heathens built this building and we paid them for it. There might've been a few Christians on site, but for the most part, they were not Christian people, but we had a business partnership. They submitted a tender. We examined it. It was a good price and they did a good job for us. So we, we want to make sure that while we are not unequally yoked to lost people, that we understand in a fallen world, there's going to be partnerships, trade relationships, treaties even forged between God's people and the world uh, around them. So this is, the, this is the bit of the context. Now, the other thing that's interesting is at this point in time, the tabernacle, which essentially was a portable temple of sorts, check this out, was over 400 years old. I think it was about 440, 450 years old. And so you could imagine it was going through some wear and tear. Uh, it had been transported all over the place and there was an, a necessity for them to build uh, a proper temple. And so S Solomon declares his intentions. And one of the first thing he does is he orders lumber. And while Israel at the time would have been far more forested than it is today, it still did not have the mountain ranges and the access to cedar trees and cypress trees that Tyre did. Lebanon was known to grow very tall, strong cedar trees. It's interesting that the cedar tree is still on the center of the Lebanese flag today. It's kind of like the national tree of Lebanon, you could say. So the deal was you give us timber and we'll give you food in return. So in the mountainous regions of Lebanon, the cedars grew tall, the cypress trees grew tall, but it wasn't a great place to grow grain. But in Israel, they could grow, grow grain. They could grow wheat and oil, probably olive oil. And while these were harder to produce in, in, in Tyre, Israel was able to produce them. And while trees were harder to grow in Israel, Tyre could produce them. So there's this, both parties decide they're gonna benefit. They can benefit from this relationship. Jews working with Gentiles to participate in the building of the temple. The amount of wheat and oil required in this trade relationship is, is pretty incredible. This was, this whole thing, I want you to see in this narrative how much work and time and money went into the building of the temple. And just think about this in light of how much of a reductionistic view most Christians have today about public worship. Such a reduced view of public worship where people are often in church, not more than 50% of the time, where churches closed down over and over again during the pandemic. That's not important. Public worship is not important. Well, I think this text <clears throat> corrects that notion. 
the, the amount of work and effort that went in. They could have said, let's just save all this money and give it to the poor. I mean, the prophets talk much about the widows and the orphans. Let's just start social programs. Why would you spend so much time and energy cutting down trees, splitting them up with ancient tools, shipping them down the seacoast, transporting them, growing endless acres of grain, producing oil, all to build a temple for public worship. Doesn't that seem like a waste of money? I remember when we were building this building, we literally had a few people leave the church because they're like, we shouldn't be spending money on a building. We should just you know, be meeting in homes or garages or whatnot. Well, not in Israel. Both parties would benefit. So we're told here that every year, so this is an annual thing, Israel would send up 20,000 cores of each item. And this went on, check this out, for 20 years. Because we know that it took seven years to build the temple. And an additional 13 years to build Solomon's palace. So this was 20 years. You do the math. Every year we send 20,000 cores of wheat, 20,000 cores of oil. Now a core, also known elsewhere in the Bible as a homer, totals about six bushels each. So if you're thinking of bushel baskets, I don't know if you ever used to go, we used to go to the orchards as kids and we pick like a, a bushel basket of apples. You multiply that by six, that's one core. So each item then is about 120,000 bushels, or if you're younger and you, you think in metric, about 4.2 million liters of each. So this is, this is a lot of produce, just, just imagine. It's just a lot, of, a lot of material. Now to put things into perspective, in the province of Ontario, the average farmer using genetically modified wheat with modern scientific tools at their disposal that can measure all the chemicals and minerals in the soil, with millions of dollars of farm equipment, with thousands of years of agricultural technological advancement, can grow on one acre of good Ontario soil anywhere between 80 and 150 bushels of wheat. But this would probably have been five to six times, we can probably grow five to six, maybe more, maybe 10 times as much wheat on an acre in Ontario than the Jews could have done in Israel 3,000 years ago. So think about how much work, how many acres of wheat you'd have to grow, how many olive trees you'd have to plant, how much, how much time and energy. This, these products were worth hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in today's money. In fact, people have estimated that the end of construction in modern dollars the temple would have cost around $300 billion. $300 billion in today's money to build. Not $300 million, not $3.5 million like we spent on this uh, auditorium, but $300 billion. And we're going to discuss recently what they got got for their money. 
So clearly these people in a way that is almost unimaginable in the modern mind believe that God was worth everything. Like unbelievable amounts of labor, unbelievable amounts of time, unbelievable amounts of money. And it begs the question, have we sufficiently given of our time, our talents, and our treasures to the work and ministry of God's kingdom and worship here on earth? It's a question that's apt to make most of us blush a little bit and feel a little uncomfortable. The modern worshiper feels inconvenienced by the tithe. You want to get people reacting, you know, have a conversation about tithing. You want to get people <clears throat> accusing you of legalism. Make the suggestion they should be in church every week. That's legalistic. Much of the modern church, even in terms of its architecture, we've reduced church architecture down to basically warehouses, pole barns. Let's make them as cheap as possible. After all, God cares about the poor. God forbid if we invest in public edifices that display the glory and grandeur of God. This is the mindset of a church. And I don't think it's really driven by a desire to feed the poor and to live simplistic lives. I think it's driven primarily by the fact that we don't want to spend money on these things. We just don't want to spend our money on public worship. And of course, I'm, I'm not the kind of person <clears throat> that believes that simple structures are sinful. I've been to third world countries and some of the structures that they worship in <clears throat> aren't as nice as my barn. And God is still honored there. But the question is, is simplicity really our motive? I don't think it is. I mean, if, we, if we're able to spend countless tens of thousands of dollars over our lifetimes vacationing in tropical or subtropical places, spending exorbitant sums on airfare, but we're concerned about spending too much money on beautiful places for God's name to be exalted. I think the problem is with us in terms of our priorities. Again, I'm not a, I'm not a stickler on church architecture, but public houses of worship do communicate something about our priorities. When the godless person drives by a church building that's dilapidated and dumpy, when they come in and everything is garage sale furnishings and kind of has a musty smell to it and hasn't been updated in decades, it does say something. It does say something about our priorities, especially if after having been invited to our public houses of worship, they're invited to our homes. And... The homes are well done, they're well cared for, they're well manicured, the lawn's cut, etc. It does, it does communicate something about our priorities. I remember in my first youth pastorate back in the early 90s, one of the things all cool youth pastors uh, had were youth lounges. And uh, youth lounges were generally some <clears throat> mouse-ridden room down the far end of the building, and you would people would drop off their, you know, cat pee couches uh, at the church. You know, the kind of couches with the big floral flowers on them with rips in the seat. But it's like, give them to the youth group. I think it was cat pee. It could have been the junior high boys too. I'm not sure. 
but they generally were not the kind of couches that you would want to put in your living room and have people come over and sit on. But we, it was very common, you know, give the church your used items because we want to make sure we keep the church humble and, you know, in, in public, we want to make sure everything's kind of very austere and, and basic. And there might have been some practicality to that, again, when you're dealing with young people that can be a little more destructive than uh, mature adults. But I, was, I remember thinking to myself, I don't, I'm just not comfortable with this anymore. Like if, if we can't afford in a public house of worship decent furniture and it becomes the dumping ground for all of our leftovers, again, I think it communicates something about the nature of our priorities Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, God God is worthy of our immaterial best, the best of our thinking, the best of our prayers, the best of our reading, the best of our integrity. But check this out. He's also worthy of our material best. He's worthy of the best of our treasures, the best of our furnishings, the best of our resources, the best of our work. He's also worthy of that. And we're not dualists and we're certainly not Gnostics. And if your mindset is, oh, God just wants my immaterial self, but he doesn't care much about my material self, you better reread the word of God because he wants both. He wants your humility. He wants your prayer, but he also wants, he wants your money. Now, you know, it's already his anyway. He wants the best of your time, your talents and your treasures. But of course, people in Solomon's day, weren't that much different than they are now. And so if Solomon had just said, hey, I need, uh, I need everyone to volunteer, let's say a third of their time. Take time off your farms and from your family. I need, I need all of you to volunteer a third of your time to go and help transport goods. He probably wouldn't have had that many people show up. So Solomon, much like you would do in war, says it's required. It's required I'm going to have a draft of sorts, much like you would do when you conscript soldiers. I'm going to have a draft and you each need to take turns participating in the building of the the temple. And he forced it. It was required. And again, this is not all, this is, this is biblically sanctioned slavery. This is no, no, this is, this is God's wisdom to Solomon. He said, it's required. You must participate. It's not an option. This is how important it is to us. Everyone needs to, needs to participate. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel. And the draft numbered 30,000 men. Again, just think about the number of man hours. We've talked about the wheat and the oil. Check out the amount of man hours. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in ships. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. In addition to this, Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. It's hard to imagine these numbers. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charged the people who carried on the work, at the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones by hand, by the way, in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone 
to build the house. I've seen a little bit of this at the Wailing Wall. <clears throat> There's the shafts you can go down. You might have seen pictures of the Wailing Wall. Uh, of course, it's, you know, there's, there's, it's been added to, and Solomon's temple was ruined, and there was the Temple of Herod built later. But you can, you can take these tours down to the bottom of the, the wall that surrounded the temple complex. And I would say, and it's been a little while, but I would say some of the stones are bigger than this mat. I don't know if you can see this mat, but it's probably 10 feet long, maybe, maybe 14 feet long. These are just massive, beastly, heavy stones that were quarried and carried great distances by <clears throat> these workers. Now, again, the sheer numbers that are being described in this narrative are staggering. Now, here's what's gonna blow your mind. <clears throat> the completed temple, when it was done, was only about 1,300 square feet. Like, how big is that? About the average size of one of these houses on Spring Garden Road. It's like, how is that possible? 30,000 people, thousands cutting, tens of thousands cutting stones, $300 billion, and you get a 1,300 square foot temple out of it? Now, keep in mind, the temple was in a big complex. There were outer walls, there were courtyards. So it became a rather large temple. It was extremely tall, it was several stories tall. But the temple itself <clears throat> was about the size of your house. Not much bigger than that. Now, if I came to you and said, hey, we're, we're building a new church, it's going to be roughly the size of uh, this section of chairs here, and the price tag is $300 billion, and all of you have to give a third of your year for 20 years, and we need tens of thousands of conscripts. You'd be like, we're gone. You're nuts. There's no way that could be possibly justified. But it is justified because God is worthy of everything. He is worthy of every piece of architecture on the planet being built for his honor and his glory. He is worthy of not a third of our time, but 100% of our time. He is worthy of all of the money, all of the gold that has ever been mined on planet earth. By the way, a large part of the cost of the temple was that they lined the thing with gold. So that was very, very expensive in addition to the stones. Everything was top quality material. They cut no corners. Everything was absolutely and astonishingly beautiful because God was worthy of a $300 billion temple. Now, <clears throat> we obviously don't have those resources in our church, <laughs> but we are grateful to the Lord for the provision of this house dedicated to the worship of God. By the way, I want to give you a, a quick, just as a sidebar, some good news. We built this building five years ago, about four and a half years ago, for 3.5 uh, million. Uh, we're making another large payment um, in a couple of weeks. So our mortgage will be down to, drum roll, $250,000. <clears> and we're grateful for that. And by God's grace, our, our hope is to, is to pay it off at the mortgage renewal uh, in the fall. So we're, we're, we're getting within striking distance so we can pray 
uh, to the Lord for that. But we didn't conscript you to build the place, if you remember. Some of you painted, some of you did some flooring, but it was all, hey, if you want to show up, show up. Can you imagine conscription? I mean, we, we would all, myself included, be a little, little bit less than pleased if there was conscription required. But you're smart people. You get the point. As we read this narrative, you get the point. God wants your everything. How literal are we being? We're being literal. God wants everything and already owns it. It's just a matter whether you're going to acknowledge that or not. I mean, you're smart people. You get the point. God wants your absolute best. And so I want to end with some practical questions for you, just to get you thinking about this. Can you honestly say that in your Christian life, you are giving God the best of your best of your best? Can you say that? What, what does God require of us? Well, first of all, God requires our bodies. Literally, he requires our bodies, not just our immaterial aspect, not just your soul and spirit, but God requires everything. He requires this as well to be used in service for his purposes and in worship of him. I would commend to you Romans chapter 12, verse one, where Paul said, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your body is to honor the Lord, the way you use your body, the way you care for your body, what you do with your body, how you work with your body. Your body belongs to God. And so it's not acceptable for us to give God our immaterial. We're praying, we're thinking grand thoughts about him, but we're not using our bodies to work for him. We're not honoring the Lord with our bodies. We need to care for our bodies. Physically, we need to care for our bodies, not abuse them. There's many in the church today who would excuse substance abuse. Well, I have an addiction. It's not my fault. No, that's dishonoring to the Lord. You need to deal with that. And we can help you to deal with that if you have issues in that regard. There's some that would, would excuse themselves of sexual sin. There's many ways you can sin sexually with your body. It's, it's out of bounds for the Christian. If you're sinning sexually, you have stunted worship first and foremost. You're not just out of control. You have stunted worship. God wants you to honor him sexually with the way you use your body. What you eat matters to God. You're to give your body to God as a living sacrifice. Not, not just your mind. Everything about you belongs to God. Your mind, of course, belongs to God. And the great commandment, among other things, we are to love God with our mind. So we need to work hard at developing patterns of thinking that reflect the patterns that God has established for us. We need to think about the things of God. We need to have a proper understanding of self and a proper understanding of others. We should all be striving to develop our minds, our rational aspect to bring honor and glory to God. God wants your wallet. He doesn't want 10%. He wants everything. He wants everything. He wants you to be open-handed 
about your physical resources. Now, he doesn't need it, so he will permit you under normal circumstances to keep the vast majority of it to use and to steward, to raise your family, to feed yourself, to clothe yourself, to be a blessing to others. But if you're stingy, you're, you're more concerned about, you know, your retirement or economic downturns, or po- accumulating for yourself storehouses of money and resources, but you're not open-handed. You don't have a mindset that says, I, I get it. All of my money is God's. It doesn't stress me out. I manage it according to his plans. You need to make some corrections in your life. And God also wants your schedule. Every single one of you should be giving numerous hours every week to the purposes of God. Not sitting in pews, filling them up, spectating and watching others serve. Not watching your coworker evangelize while you hide out in your your study carol at work. God wants you to be bold and courageous and external in your faith. Everybody, Everybody around you should know you're a Christian. That should not be the best kept secret in your neighborhood or the best kept secret in your family. If God is worthy of a temple that costs $300 billion, he's worthy of everything you have. Everything, lock, stock, and barrel belongs to the Lord. And so we want to ask the Lord to adjust our thinking. If, we, if, we're, if we've maybe lost sight of this and we're realizing, you know, Lord, like I love you, but if the fact of the matter is I, I tend to give you my leftovers, we need to repent of that. We need to ask the Lord to forgive us of that. If we have this mindset that, you know, public worship doesn't matter. It's just, you know, me and Jesus and God, the father and God, the Holy spirit hanging out in my prayer closet and ministry in the life of the church is sort of a distant secondary things. My job's my priority or whatever. We need to correct that. We need to correct that. If we tend to give of our, our leftovers, you know, after we've paid our tuition and all our internet subscriptions and, our two new vehicle payments and our hefty mortgages and our on and on and on and on. We give God of our leftovers. We need to repent of that. That is sin. Like if you can't give God your best, keep all of it. We don't want it. God doesn't want it. He doesn't want your money if it's your leftovers. He wants your first fruits. And obviously there's people of different capacity here. So there's not like some formula you just plug in. Oh, this is what he's looking for. Here's your bill. Here's your invoice. It's not like that. But you know in your heart of hearts what sacrificial giving looks like. You give till it hurts a little bit. But you know what? When it starts to hurt, amazingly, it turns to joy. Because you know you've, you've done well. And God has been, been honored. So let's, let's pray as we lead into communion that the Lord would continue to encourage us to be extravagant in our worship and sacrificial with our lives so that he might be greatly honored.